The O3C Podcast is a proud member of the HyperX Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the O3C Podcast, uh, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and joining me for a lovely video games playdate is my excellent friend and gaming playmate, Chris Dow. Starblood Arena. Announcement! Announcement! Hello! 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 With Season 5 now fully underway, it's time for your weekly helping of announcements. We're online at o3c.games. There's all sorts there. There's links to our social media channels, there's articles, there's reviews, videos, a whole smorgasbord of things to do, things to read, things to watch. There's also a very important link on that page at o3c.games support, where you'll find links to our Patreon page if you fancy setting up a rolling pledge to our podcast, as well as a one-off donation link via PayPal. If you choose to join the Patreon elite, you will be furnished with bonus episodes, deleted scenes, access to our lovely Discord, and new for this season, unedited video versions of each episode. Marvel at my massively inferior recording setup to Jonathan. Smirk at the jokes that don't land and are mercilessly stripped out of the audio versions of the podcast. Hang on every cough with never heard before glottal action. As always, we couldn't do what we do without your support at home. And it does really mean the world to us. It's Halloween month, and that means it's time to get your setup decked out in a new costume. Get 15% off of all pink products at HyperX.com by using code HXPN at checkout. Whether you prefer the chic pink accents of the Pulsefire Haste or the snazzy metallic pink of the Allo Origin 60 keyboard, this is definitely the month to think pink. Head over to HyperX.com and check out the selection and enter code HXPN, as in the HyperX Podcast Network, in all caps to get your 15% discount at checkout. So, here we are, embarking on Season 5 proper, and we are going to be kicking off with a celebration of the brand new handheld console developed by Panic! The Playdate. Revolutionary in its lo-fi approach to the modern gaming industry, we will be telling you all about the console and its first batch of games in, uh, in a little bit. But first, what have we been playing this week? Chris, what have you played this week? A few things, as always. A good while ago now, I wrote an article for O3C.games, our aforementioned website, about a game called Chime Sharp. And it was a sequel to a puzzle game that I played back on the 360 and then later on the PS3. And it was just called Chime then. And I wasn't crazy about the sequel. It was still good, but the original was a really tight mix of block-based puzzling, a la Tetris, and music composition. And I felt Chime Sharp lost its way a little bit with its litany of new modes and tracks and whatever else, and it just wasn't quite as pure. For some reason, this week I've gone back to the original Chime and re-fallen in love with its concept. You've got a big grid, you need to place odd-shaped pieces down to create quads, and whenever you make a quad, you have a small window of time which to try and add to its size that creates either wider or taller quads that increase your score, but more importantly, increase your coverage of the playfield because you are aiming with every quad you make to kind of contribute to your clear percentage with you know the goal being to make shapes that have cumulatively covered everything. The thing that originally sold me on the game is that with each additional quad you place, the music changes in real time. So they are licensed tracks, but they've been kind of broken down to their stems. And it means that a particularly active board filled with quads and combos will 
build the music to a real swell, but an empty board will drop the track to kind of near silence or just kind of like small parts of it. Oh, wow. It's quite a hard thing to visualize, mm. but it's really nice to play. Once you kind of get the hang of the basics of how it works, it's much more musical than Luminez, which, as I've said before, is still the only game Georgia has ever asked me to turn the sound off of when playing on the TV. <laughs> and it's much less ordered than Tetris. Like, it's, it's quite a bitty game because the way you're just trying to fill those little gaps wherever you can. Bitty. But it does take elements of both games nicely and genuinely produces something quite new, quite fresh. And there hasn't really been anything like it other than its sequel, like I said, that was not quite as nice. Next game up on the list is Black Mesa. Ooh, I've been playing that this week as well. Ooh. If Chime was a very Chris title, uh, Black Mesa, the fan-made reconstruction of Half-Life, probably isn't particularly. Mm. (laughs) Like, I've still never beaten Half-Life. I've never played its sequel or its sequels, episodic sequels. Mm. But the other day, I was recommended a video on YouTube where someone was comparing the original PC build of Half-Life with its cancelled Dreamcast port and then its retail Mm. PlayStation 2 release. And so me, being me, thought, wouldn't it be really cool to beat the Dreamcast version and have that as my only full experience with (laughs) Half-Life? And 15 minutes into that build and trying with a single analog stick control setup and near infinite load times, owing to the way the the Dreamcast just didn't have enough RAM to to load these stages, Mm. I thought this is really fucking stupid and and reinstalled Black Mesa on the deck (laughs) instead. (laughs) Yeah. Sensibly, sensibly. Now, I had played this game for a couple of hours on my laptop when I first got it a few years ago. But it's been much more fun to play on the handheld because despite a mouse and keyboard affording way more control, mm. I'm sure, for those that enjoy playing games that way, I don't have a decent way to really hunch over my laptop to make that sort of experience particularly comfortable or fun. Mm. I just I don't have a decent desk that's the right height. I don't have a comfortable chair. None of the things you need to actually enjoy a first-person shooter on a laptop. On deck, though, with a few small tweaks and a couple control changes, I'm having a really good time. And I think it's highlighted some of the Steam Deck's real sort of MVP features, like the way you can customize every control on it. Yeah. The way as well that you can set the screen refresh rate at a lower value than 60 hertz. And that has benefits for battery life, because if you're not refreshing the screen as much, it's using less energy. But it also lets you force a frame rate lock at a number like 40 or 50 frames a second. And that's something that most games are just not going to let you do normally because they don't let you just set things at arbitrary values. And for Black Mesa, you do get a pretty solid 60 frames per second most of the time. But there's still these moments with like big lighting effects or fire or sometimes water shaders that can make the game drop a few frames and just feel a bit wobbly in places. And by locking it at 50 frames per second, 50 hertz, the whole thing feels marvellously smooth to my eyes. So that's, that's what I've gone for. Lovely. I've just got back to where I was on my laptop save as I wanted to have a fresh play, seeing as it had been like two, two and a half years at this point since I last picked it up. And I think I'm far more likely to push onwards in this format than I was when I was sat at my dining table on a straight backed chair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's, yeah. what's this space? I could well drop it in two weeks like I always do, but you know, I'm enjoying it for what it's worth at the moment. Good, good. I'm glad. Yeah, I've, I've been quite enjoying it as well. I mean, I, I have played the original Half-Life. I'm constantly blown away by the level of detail in the Black Mesa fan remake it is yeah utterly astonishing down to the art on the individual items in the vending machines at the back of like yeah. a staff yeah. room in the in black mace it is just absolutely incredible it is without a doubt the best way to experience that game these days like yeah for sure for sure hands down i'm still not quite used to console controls for first person games but it's less of the dual stick stuff and it's more that i can't press 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven to yeah. change between my weapons. You can set it up on the touchpads if you if you yeah. fanny about. Yeah, There's some nice yeah. options there. So I've got that as like a, a, a weapon wheel yeah. for like thief games and stuff. I don't know. I don't know how you there employ that because it's even got like graphics that somebody's done for them. I don't know how that yeah. works, but I'd um yeah. So that would be nice. So I'm, I I probably need to have a few more little tweaks to that to that setup to get it feeling right for me. But uh, yeah, like you said, it's a really nice fit for the deck and continues to be an incredible console. Lastly, because it's never a crisp week without at least one total curveball. For some reason, I was having a gander through a list of late 3DS eShop releases. Mm. And I thought I was pretty much on top of everything that was sort of exclusive to the handheld because I'd I'd followed it pretty closely for the whole time it was a, a current machine. But I came across a trio of games by a solo developer called Luke Vincent. And these games, which are titled Harold's Walk, Harold Reborn, and then Automaton Lung, they're all exploration-based 3D titles that lean into a spacey, throwback, borderline broken aesthetic (laughs) that you kind of, you'd usually associate with early polygonal games like Bubsy 3D on the PlayStation or some of the C-tier N64 platformers that launched in the wake of Mario 64. These games, though, they are really interesting, at least to me. <laughs> like, I find it fascinating that the music genre Vaporwave, which I believe was intended, at least in my mind, kind of meant to be a deliberate flash in the pan as just like a, a bit of an electronic subgenre, trading on the sort of nostalgia for the late 90s and early 2000s. It survived for about a decade at this point, And there are some genuine classics of the genre. There's some really, really good stuff out there. But it's now started influencing other forms of media. So the other day I saw some idents on all four when Georgia was watching Bake Off <laughs> that really sort of lent into that blown out pastel palettes of, of this micro genre. You've got kind of Y2K throwback fashion brands that will yeah. use vaporwave elements to help promote their products. And now you've got games that are starting to lean into it as well. And I played Harold's Walk to 100% completion. It's not a big commitment because it's only an hour or so in totality. But it was an experience that put me in mind of some of my favorite Vaporwave records by virtue of it almost referencing these recognizable elements of ancient games. You know, it's got this bizarre menu UI. It's got a sweetly naive sequence soundtrack. It's just, it's got a vibe. (laughs) It's the best way to describe it. It's got a vibe. Both Harold Reborn and Automaton Lung are meant to be bigger and better games as they iterate on some of the ideas in Harold's Walk, which does feel kind of a bit throwaway. You know, I I beat it in the morning while sat in bed and that was kind of it done. It's not going to be a recommendation for everyone, for sure. (laughs) But if you've ever listened to this show and you thought for a while that you might have similar taste to me, I think it's definitely worth a punt. Like in most regions, it's now impossible to add eShop credit to the 3DS, but do feel free to send me a message on Twitter if you need a hand accessing some of these now buried pieces of eShop treasure on your device. I mean, I, I've had to look at Wikipedia for Vaporwave because I've never heard of that before. <laughs> and it says, see also bisexual lighting. Yeah, yeah. Lo-fi hip-hop, um, mass surrealism, yeah. funk. Funk, I don't know that one. We're getting away from me now. Yacht rock, which is a term I haven't heard before. <laughs> I uh, feel like you just made that one I, up. I really haven't. I really haven't. Weirdly, I heard that. I heard yacht rock. <laughs> In a uh, in a podcast the other day, uh, I think it might yeah. be a, an Australian coined term. Yeah. Well, I heard it said by an Australian first, so I'm assuming that the entire yeah, of Australia probably. came up with that. Well, that's certainly one for you. Well done. <laughs> I mean, we were worried about you know this becoming too highbrow. Now Mindy's gone, but I don't know. I don't know. 
What have you played this week? Well, I mentioned last week that I'd most certainly make a start on Batman Arkham City with the second game yes. of the Arkham trilogy after I finished Arkham Asylum. And I have done that. I've been playing Batman Arkham City. Uh, it is, as promised, uh, an open world evolution of Arkham Asylum, which is for better and for worse, I think. I do miss that tight Metroidvania aspect of the first game, but it is bigger, more expansive, more variety in there as well. You get to play as Catwoman as well as Batman, which is fun. Uh, there's plenty of new, <laughs> plenty of new <laughs> combat mechanics, uh, which is good. There's plenty more Riddler riddles to solve and collectibles to hunt down. It's it's still a really really good Batman story. It's so yeah. I'm just really enjoying. <laughs> I'm just really enjoying picking my way through that. I'm happy to play it in short bursts between other things uh, because there have been other things that I've played. The first of which is Death Loop. I know very little about this other than the name. So Deathloop was published by Bethesda last year. It got absolute rave reviews. IGN gave it a perfect 10 out of 10. So it's been on my list of things to look at, you know, since then. It's a first person game. So yeah, I'm never going to look to play it on a console as a priority, but also I'm better at handling those things now. And I managed to pick up a really cheap key for it so i didn't have much to lose by uh picking it up to play on my google stadia <laughs> oh no hang on <laughs> topical no obviously i picked it up on uh, on steam deck it is steam deck verified although i'm not not entirely sure i agree with that i'll tell you why in a little bit Ooh. generally the performance of the game is, is is really good it looks and runs great it's just a very remarkably clever and sophisticated set up it was widely praised as groundbreaking and revolutionary in honesty it, it's mostly cobbling together really great ideas from games that have come before it and putting them together in a triple a title for the first time yeah but the easiest comparison to make is with out of wilds because death loop is built on a similar time looping system where yeah you uh, if you die you go back to the start of a, of a day but each time you're armed with more knowledge that you'll have gained from the previous loop you can put that into practice to progress further etc etc broad premise is you need to assassinate these eight visionaries, they're called. They're the antagonists of the game. The island on which the game takes place has a series of districts, and the daily loop is split into four time slots as well. Morning, afternoon, evening, and night, essentially. And each of these visionaries are generally hanging out in one of the districts at a specific time. And your ultimate task is to learn all of the relevant information to allow you to pull off all eight assassinations in one day. Oh, wow. And that will require all kinds of manipulation of various elements within the game to get certain events and people to happen and move around at the right points. Uh, you can use stealth or, you know, science or supernatural powers that you manage to pick up you can go in like all guns blazing you can basically play the game however you want you also then pick up upgrades and all kinds of bits and bobs to make you stronger and do more you know cool things each loop like the action mechanics of it feel very very similar to something like dishonored or prey or the bioshock games the time loop mystery concept is exactly like what there is in outer wilds in death loop it's all tied together in a really really fun really well written and very well performed uh, story it's very slick it's very engaging it's very funny it's an all-round excellent game however very very similar to the issue i cited last week when talking about taiji yeah i don't have the continual headspace to dwell in this game to fully enjoy it yeah like when i was playing the witness when i was playing out of wilds 
I had the time and space to spend loop after loop, tweaking little details each time, really take my time familiarizing myself with all the nuances of this world. And I just don't have that these days. It's because you have become an old man. Jonathan Oldman. Yeah. <laughs> there's also, as I alluded to earlier, there's, there's quite a big major issue with uh, the game on Steam Deck because it requires you to be logged into Bethesda Net. Yeah. But if I put my Steam Deck to sleep whilst I'm playing at any point, whenever the game gets to the end of the, the next loop, it basically soft locks because <sighs> it, it, tr- it tries to reconnect you and it just won't. It just won't. It just doesn't do it. And then you have to close the game, reopen it, and it takes forever to load up, which yeah. is just a monumental pain and puts a very swift stop to any sort of flow that you've generated. And certainly for like my aging brain, it puts a fast and hard full stop at the end of a train of thought. So it makes it quite difficult to kind of, even if I did have the time and space to have a session on it, I can't quite get that flow with it, which is a real shame. So yeah, regrettably, unless someone's willing to pay me to stream the game over a course of a week or something, and I can just dedicate that time to it. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get through it really, which is a shame, but instead I turned my attention to a game that I knew was going to be very, very much for me. Yeah, it's one of those games, it almost feels like it was designed specifically for me to enjoy. Yeah. And that is Cult of the Lamb. Oh, I was waiting to hear about this because you mentioned that you picked it up mm. the end of last season. And I don't think you'd started yeah. it yet, but it was sat ready to go. It was, it was. And uh, I, I did pick it up on Steam Deck. I'd heard that there were some performance issues with the Switch port. Although, I mean, the Steam version, the, the one I'm playing isn't rock solid, but then, you know, it's an indie game and, and it's going to get patches and stuff will smooth out. But it's, it's not an issue. It's just a few, you know, frame rate stutters and stuff like that. But anyway, as soon as this game was announced, I, you know, it was... Like I said, it was clear it was for me. It was clear they were targeting the same sort of demographic as The Binding of Isaac. And the core gameplay is built around similarly top-down, room-based, roguelike runs. But yeah. the dressing that surrounds those runs is, is is very, very different to Isaac because it's also this like life sim and a civilization management game as you're seeking to establish and run your very own cult. So between runs, you'll be managing your followers, you'll be preaching sermons, declaring doctrines... Uh, hosting rituals, building facilities for housing and farming for your cult to ensure they stay loyal, developing all manner of things. It's just, it's it's really, really good fun. Like, essentially, all the different upgrades and stuff that you that you have in the uh, in the game, they're all dressed up as various facets of running your cult. So, like all of these managerial functions that you're enacting, they're giving you power boosts or unlocking new weapons and powers and abilities and functions for your runs in between. And it's just, yeah, it's just really, really good. The runs themselves are just great fun. The combat is, I mean, it's more melee based than Isaac, which is obviously kind of more ranged. It's satisfying. It's fun. The art style's lovely. It's funny. There's great variety with everything in the game. I can tell that there's a lot of density there. There's quite a lot of systems and stuff like that overlaying. But I've also been told that the game isn't as big as you might think it would be probably not going to occupy me as much as binding of isaac did yeah uh, but it yeah. is it's also quite nice knowing that i've got an end point to reach yeah. for there is a full stop yeah there is a full stop and you know it's the sort of game that could easily be iterated upon i'm sure that like i mean it's had quite a lot of success it's had great reviews so i wouldn't be surprised if like expansions and dlc appear down the line 
I would say if you're a fan of Binding of Isaac, if you're a fan of roguelikes or, you know, life management sims or just like just want to support good indie games, just get it. It's really good. It's really good fun. Sounds tasty. It is. So we're here to talk about the play date. Yay! We've mentioned already that one of the features of this season was going to be essentially picking through the seasonal updates that the play date is delivering on a weekly basis. So every couple of weeks, we'll get together, we'll catch up on kind of the games that have come out in that time and think about kind of what we have enjoyed, what we perhaps have not enjoyed as much, and eventually start thinking about kind of, you know, what else the play deck represents in terms of the the indie scene that spiraled out in terms of being able to sideload games, as well as looking at development tools that come with the play date. But it is the play date. It's yellow. It's square. It doesn't have a backlight, but it does have a crank. Yes, it does. Now, we've both been waiting for this thing for quite some time. Ordering it was a bit of a clusterfuck, <laughs> I think is a, yeah. a nice way of saying it, because initial demand massively outstripped production plans, I think, for Panic. International orders were pretty woolly. We, we both kind of struggled in our, own, in our own way to get an order in to begin mm. with. And then when they were in the process of actually being produced, eventual quality assurance checks meant that the thing was then delayed massively for all patrons for essentially a year beyond what everyone's expecting. But it's October 2022. We both have the plucky little handheld held in hand. Mm. I've actually owned my unit for a little bit longer than you, Jonathan. But as so much of the device's allure is rooted in the sense of discovery that comes with it and its unique game delivery system, we have actually held off discussing pretty much anything about mm. the device until now, essentially. <laughs> Some basics to kick things off for anyone that is unaware of what this machine is. It's a tiny handheld games console. It's got around four gigabytes of onboard storage to house digital games. It has two primary buttons. It's got a menu button, a D-pad, the aforementioned spinny crank, and an internal gyroscope, I think, or at the very least, an internal accelerometer, something that can feel when it's being moved about. It's got a monochrome 1-bit display, which in terms of color is actually more lo-fi than even the Game Boy with its small range of tone. But every pixel here on this relatively high resolution reflective screen is essentially binary on or off, black or white, basically. Audio is surprisingly crisp when played through the machine's tiny speaker or via headphones. And all of these features come together to create this strange feeling of simultaneously high and low fidelity gaming. Games themselves are being delivered, at least for its first season, as part of the device purchase at no additional cost. So each Monday, the Playdate's little LED will flash so that you know there are two new games waiting for you patiently. Some felt a little bit frustrated that they couldn't dive into all 24 Season 1 titles at once. But the slow rollout, I think, is, like so much of the Playdate's design, very deliberate. You know, it's a choice that was made by Panic to kind of get people to engage with things in a different way. And it's used here to make you try these games out and give them all a decent stab as opposed to library scrolling, like a sort of bloated emulator setup. You are also able to sideload games. You can download them from itch.io or kind of other locations. And already there is a burgeoning indie scene that kind of nicely supplements the games that are included in this more formal season plan. My initial thoughts have been very positive. I think the build quality of the unit itself is surprisingly robust. The buttons themselves feel decently stiff and responsive. They're kind of, they're closer to the Switch than the DS Lite, if you want a quick comparison (laughs) point. The screen, providing you in at least a semi-lit area, is very sharp and clear. And although on occasion I do find myself half pining for some sort of illumination or backlight, I quite like that needing a light source forces me to consider how I'm engaging with the device in the same way that 
listening to a vinyl record is less convenient than Spotify or Apple Music or anything like that. But it does feel more fulfilling because it asks a little bit extra of you as the consumer and inadvertently forces you to place just a bit more stock in the music or here, like in the game itself, because you're having to choose a time to sit down, get a light on, you know, get yourself ready to actually play it properly. I think the games themselves have all been a pretty good time too. Now, we're, we're going to talk about these kind of obviously week by week as we go. And naturally, with the way titles are rolled out, not every game is going to appeal to every player. But I think the sense of discovering something new each week and being forced to really confront each game properly somehow offsets the potential disappointment in some way. And it reminds me a little bit of being young, getting your kind of one game for the month or two months or longer and just having to make do. Yeah. Because you find fun because that's what you have to work with. Now, it is a little bit different now because I could play 15,000 other games in the room if I really want to. So it's not going to be quite the same as, you know, forcing my way through Kung Fu Kid on the Master <laughs> System or the Fairy Tale Adventure on the Mega Drive, which are both bad games, but <laughs> games I played a lot because that's what I had. While the quality of all of the games on the play date is far higher than Kung Fu Kid, there's definitely been titles that I have enjoyed more or less than others. And I think a big part of these episodes is to offer our thoughts systematically on all of these strange games that make their way to the little yellow handheld that could. My one-line review at this stage would be, it's a perfect device to play on the toilet. <laughs> like it's, it's a machine that is small, it's got inherent portability, it lends itself really nicely to quick five-minute play sessions in most titles. And most crucially for me, it plays a very decent game of both Tetris and Solitaire via two sideload apps called Rainblocks and Smolitaire. Mm. So even if I never played a game from any of the seasons, the fact that I can have Tetris in my pocket at all times is pretty good for my own mental health and well-being. So what are your initial thoughts on this little device, Jonathan? Because as I said, we really haven't shared that much no. between each other since they arrived. No, I, I mean, very similar to you, to be honest. I mean, I knew that there was going to be a certain premium feel to it because I knew how much care Panic had put into every single aspect of developing this machine, you know. And it does. It feels it feels great. It looks great. It's really nice and solid. The the crank has got just a really nice action to it. Is there subtle haptic feedback, or have I just imagined I, that? I think you might have imagined it. Is but... there there is rumble on it, isn't there? Right, hang on, I've got to check. There's not. <laughs> wow. Deleted scene right there. The crank has got a great action to it. Something that would be quite nice if there was some sort of haptic feedback in the uh, in the console. Yeah. That that could be quite maybe nice. Revision two. Maybe maybe. But it's the little things, you know, like the flashing blue light on top when you get those new games arrived. It's just incredibly nice. The light changes colour to alert you that it's new games and it's not just on, you know. Have I imagined that as well? <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> that's why we write notes Jonathan yeah. that's, why we, that's why we don't do this off the cuff I'm reading my notes <laughs> I've realised I've imagined half the features it's like, ridiculous the colour screen is really something to see in person the little flashing blue light on top when you get your new games arrived is just it's, it's a lovely little feature like it really stands out on my desk most of the lights that are on in fact all of them looking around are orange or yellow and it, it, it really pops when I walk into my office and there's just a, a faint blue glow. It just brings me a little jolt of excitement, which is crazy, really. Such a small thing. I love how easy it is to sideload games. You don't even need to plug it into your computer. Like You do it all just through browser and it just downloads onto it. It's amazingly well done, incredibly easy. 
As brilliant as the ultra-reflective display is, I do wish it had a backlight. I absolutely agree with what you said about it putting you in a more mindful place of how you're going to experience these games in the console. And I think actually playing it on the toilet is absolutely brilliant. I might <laughs> fit a wall mount in there uh, next to the toilet paper. <laughs> Just pull it out in a little arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I might even make a little, uh, a, a giant crank to put the toilet roll on. <laughs> but like when you hit the light source, it's incredible. It's, it's really remarkable how clear you can see things. But then it's got a similar issue to what I had with the original 3DS models, whereby in order to achieve the desired effect, you do need to have the console at a specific angle for the 3DS. It was being right in the middle of that sweet spot to get the glasses free 3D to work. And, you know, for the play date, that angle is geared towards hitting a sweet spot of reflection off whatever light source you've got. Yeah. And because moving the console is a part of playing some of the games. And I'm not just talking about like using the accelerometer because I haven't actually played one with that, but using the crank just jiggles the console enough that it means your visibility is compromised when you're using that. If you're playing from just bouncing off a single light source, it's not going to replace the switch or the steam deck when I'm on my sofa in the evenings. And it's a shame because actually some of those games would be quite nice just to sort of just sit there quietly on the couch where we play things is really interesting as well because the switch is now become the console that for a long while i barely took it out the dock and in the last year or so i have actually started to move about with it basically since i got the oled model i mm. thought I, I should make use of this thing i've just paid money for yeah. so i i sit in bed sometimes or if i go and visit someone i'll take it with me and play it on the train and it's nice to have a machine that is portable in that way The Steam Deck, because it needs more power, generally I'm using as a home machine that I just happen to be looking at handheld. And the Playdate is something different again, because like I said, it's it's the toilet console. Mm -hmm. It's what I take if I'm going to go and have a poo. I always have it next to my laptop generally. And especially on the weekends when I'm doing schoolwork, I'm getting stuff ready for the week. I reward myself when it's like, okay, I've done 20 minutes of work. I'll just have a quick round of something or I'll play something for two minutes. And because it's just straight on, you press the button, you're back in whatever you were doing. It's got that kind of immediate refresh. It works really nicely, whereas even a game on the Switch, which pops up straight away, they generally need a level of investment because they are bigger experiences that I don't always want to commit to if I'm also trying to be focused and get on with something. So, yeah, I think they all have a place and it's really nice to to have a series of machines that they're not replacing each other. They, They kind of have their own purpose yeah, and their, their own, own place. spot in the house yeah, yeah yeah it's really really nice to have something with a very different purpose different to just handheld gaming it's it's uh you know it's, it's a whole whole thing of itself and and it's just really exciting to think about the potential of it and we can dive right into talking about how developers are using the system right now because the last thing we can do is chat about the first two games that were released for the play day in season one and Chris, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us about the? I don't know if it was the first one you played or if it was the first one that downloaded on yours because they're released in couplets. Yeah. But Whitewater Wipeout was uh, was the first game that arrived on my system. If you'd like to tell our wonderful listeners about that, yeah, of course. I think the way that they have been rolled out is that basically whenever you receive the device, whether it's today, whether it was six months ago, whether it's in a year's time, if they're still using this season-based system, when you open it up, it's got two games ready to go. And then whenever the next Monday is, you will get your your next two. So if you get it on a Monday, then you can be part of that system straight away. But you could easily also pick it up on a Sunday Mm. and then have two more games the next day. I can't remember when in the week I got mine. But as you say, 
the first game I played was Whitewater Wipeout Whee. because it popped up on my screen. It did a nice little present unveiling yeah. and there it was ready to go. Now, back when we chatted on the show with Giles Goddard, he mentioned that his new studio, Chu High Labs, would be launching a game on the play date. And both me and you got quite excited talking not only to a towering industry <laughs> figure, yeah. But also because we had our pre-orders in yeah. and we knew that we'd be able to play this mystery game in the not too distant future. I don't think he gave any details away in that interview other than to say it was on the play day. No. I don't think there was any other context given. And I don't know, in spite of the long runtime for the device itself, it's felt like a strange twist of convergence that Chuhai Labs Whitewater Wipeout was one of the first two games to launch on the play day. Yeah. <laughs> like it felt like we had a weird connection to it. It is a surfing game. Can't make it any more simple than that. I see, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's really, really simple. It's a high score chasing surfing game that uses the crank as its primary input method. And I'm reasonably confident that this was chosen as one of the opening salvo for the play date and its seasonal game delivery service, precisely because of its crank use. Yeah. It's the bit everyone was talking about prior to release. And naturally, it then made sense to place it front and center in one of the first games. So... You ride a wave, you hop in the air, you score points based on how many rotations you're able to fit into each jump. And that is really it. There Mm -hmm. are no other tricks. There's no other modifiers, just you and the crank. And it is okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not exaggerating when I say in the first hour of play, I barely landed a single jump, let alone spin. My high score was one for, (laughs) and honestly, I put it down thinking I'm never going to play this again. And it was like, my high score will forever be one. (laughs) And I think it's because the control method is just so wildly different to anything Mm. most people would have used before, because it's all based on the crank, like I mentioned. And it's based on the crank's position being relative to the angle of your surface board in a very absolute way. Mm. And it takes time for that to make any sense in your head at all. It really does. Like one spin of the crank is potentially one spin of the board. And it becomes vital to really consider which direction you are pointing as you leave the water kind of thing. And more crucially, what direction you are pointing as you re-enter. Because if you over-egg the pudding, if you give it too many spins on the crank, you're going to crash, run over, too few spins, run over. Few degrees out on re-entry, run over. <laughs> like it's it's punishing, but it is learnable. And after a few hours of five minute sessions here and there, it's a good toilet game. Like I said, mm. <laughs> I've now got a pretty respectable score, and I can consistently pop and land triple or quadruple spins. And I've not got a problem with games being simple like this because look at how highly I regard something like Super Crate Box or Super Hexagon, for example. But Whitewater Wipeout does feel particularly light on content yeah. for me in terms of just having something to aim for or even like oh you've hit a new score and now the background has changed you know it doesn't have to be much yeah just a little thing that would kind of make me go oh little morsel just to keep me going but yeah how did you get on other than your your grand old score of one yeah. i mean initially i did kind of write it off because i just didn't i just couldn't get to grips with how to control it but it wasn't that i i was like i can't control this i thought i was if that makes sense. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm clearly yeah. doing this right and it's not working. And that was really frustrating. But to be honest, like once, once I got into the right headspace to make the controls work. And like, like you said, once I got that concept in my head that it was relative rather than using the crankers, like an analog. So I don't know. I, it's really difficult to describe. Yeah. It, it was actually surprisingly fun. And yeah. it, you know, it does feel like a tech demo more than a game yeah, owing to the fact that yeah it just does this one thing uh, but it does the one thing really nicely and 
it reminds me of, of, of any sort of like launch game that's come out on uh, a console with a gimmick. So if you look at like some of the DS games that were all touchscreen based, yeah. like Fruit yeah. Ninja and other things like that, you look at like One Two Switch, it's that sort of thing. But it has made me very, very glad that they decided to release the game in twos because initially the plan by Panic was to release games individually every week, not two every yeah. week. Because the Playdate games that are a bit tech demo-y, these little you know, bite-sized games, um, they would make you feel quite short-changed on their own. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there is some sort of lineage with Giles' other games, like... Extreme Sports, he loves yeah, it. Yeah, he loves he? his Extreme Sports. And I think it's it's really commendable that he's gone, right, how can I make that work on this? And yeah, I'm sure yeah. that somebody at some point will see what he's done and gone, oh, actually, if I use this as a thing, I could maybe build on it and make another surfing game or a skateboarding game or a snowboarding game that employs something else and it's really really good that the foundation has been laid you know for that genre especially as it's been laid by someone with with you know such an incredible track record there should be ski free for the play date ski free you must have played ski free back on like early windows machines it was like one of the pack-in games possibly windows 95 oh yeah god yeah but that in terms of like using the crank to actually steer down the mountain yeah as like as an endless runner, like a slalom type game. Yeah, that'd be, there you go. Yeah, Put that in the go. bank. Easy. Put that in the bank. Easy. I will say I got on significantly better with Casual Birder, which is the Birder. second game that was uh, released. <laughs> and I think Casual Birder is a much fuller gaming experience. I think whilst yes. still being a a charming like chamber piece of a game. So you basically play as an avid avian photographer. And you're exploring this little town and surrounding areas to photograph various birds. There's a big sort of puzzle solving element to it, almost point and click adventure at times. Yeah. You know, inevitably it's got a little bit of a comparison point with Pokemon Snap, where putting something into motion will cause something else to happen, which will cause a bird to appear for you to capture in a quick moment. And the way the crank is used in this game, because obviously the crank is going to be used in this game, it's really, really lovely because it acts as your focus ring on your camera. So when you get your camera out to take a snap, you then need to focus it on your subject. And cranking the little handle to do this just feels really nice. It's really quite charming. It's very well sort of implemented because the game is presented in sort of top-down fashion like you'd imagine with like Stardew Valley or top-down Zelda game. The way that it decides where your focal length is with your camera is depending on if the subject is uh, higher up or lower down on the screen. So thereby basically being closer or further away from you and having that sense of focusing, even though the perspective of the game doesn't change, it doesn't even zoom in when you get your camera out. It basically just puts a square over the, the scene that you're already looking at. But by implementing something like the, you know, the focus pulling, it makes the game feel so much more alive. It gives it so much more depth. It gives it that sense of dimensionality. It's just very, very clever. It's very clever in a very, very simple way. And we'll say the game reminded me a lot of the game Toem, which I played at some point in the last year. Uh. It's a very similar premise and setup. I mean, Toem's even in black and white and you solve puzzles, go around taking pictures of things. Obviously, Casual Birder is a much lower fi experience uh, given the nature of the handheld. But it's a really, really great example of looking what the playdate can do as opposed to looking what it can't and really tailoring a game to the system's strengths. 
it's one I'd certainly, you know, encourage people to to play. I'm sure if you've got a play date, you will have played it because that's all you probably will have been able to play for the first few days that you had it, certainly. But yeah, I think it, it deserves a lot of love. It's, a, it's got a great character to it. One of the issues I've had with a couple of the other games that I have looked at, some side-loaded games, is people really, really, really want to get a story across in a game. Yeah. And a lot of games are just very, very slow to start on playdates because there's just dialogue and dialogue and dialogue and dialogue. And it, that's not something that fits the playdate, I don't think. You need something that's immediate and engaging. And despite the fact that Casual Birder does have dialogue and all of that stuff, it's got the balance really, really right so that it actually enhances the overall experience rather than making you feel like you're just stopping and trying to read a book on a dark page. (laughs) How did you get on with it, Chris? I liked it a lot. It reminds me, I guess, of playing something like Link's Awakening on the Game Boy. Yeah. But more than that, it reminded me of the James Bond game on the Game Boy. Yes. That's a great game. Because that it had action in it. You had to kind of shoot and fight and stuff like that sometimes. But it was more about those kind of puzzle-solving mm. bits, it felt like. So a lot of the time you were looking for certain things in a scene to give to someone else. And it was that kind of fetch quest mechanic that drove that James Bond 007 game in the Game Boy. And this feels similar, just obviously with a camera mechanic. I think I would have really liked it if it was either more of the fetch quest adventure stuff. Yeah. Like exclusively. Or more of the straight-up camera game. Mm. I don't know why, like I really liked both bits, but I think the camera thing was really interesting and could essentially propel an entire game in the way that it does in Pokemon Snap, like you've already mentioned. Whereas the adventure stuff, again, could have been its own thing as well, because it was quite a nice little world laid out Mm. in this game. Like you say, the, the dialogue is kind of, it's quite cutesy, but it's all very economical. It's not kind of like big text dumps or anything like that. So kind of moving about, it's quite fun. The bit that I really, really liked, this is such a throwaway thing. Very early on, you can talk to a character who basically says, do you want your shoes to squeak or not when you walk? Yeah. And it just changes then whether or not your character moves around silently Yeah, or whether it squeaks. And it's a very small thing, but I've become aware recently of some people can suffer from something called misophonia. Yes, I have Which is basically just repetitive noises and that sort of thing and i've suddenly had this just newfound respect for a developer going i'll just make a little npc at the side give you the option for something that's just very very small but it's incredibly considered and i think i felt that in a lot of these playdate games it's it's a comfy system it's a nice welcoming system and there's these just tiny pieces of accessibility even though it is on this tiny screen and everything else they want people to enjoy their stuff they want people to explore it and kind of get into it as much as possible and that was just a cool little thing I really like the art style. Mm. I think to do art well on the one bit display takes some thinking. Yeah. I think in in terms of really considering what am I going to do here? Am I purely looking at line drawings? How am I kind of adding texture or mark making if that's what I'm trying to do to kind of give a bit of depth or tone to these characters or, or worlds, whatever I'm making and walking around the scenes in this game, there's bits that could feel really barren because it's just like a big spread of white essentially But the way that small pixels are used to just indent these little bits, make things stand out, make it feel a bit more like a real place, even though it's very, very lo-fi in kind of execution, is really nice. I haven't actually finished this game. Mm. You know, it came out right at the beginning. I have a feeling, like talking earlier about when I got my play date, I think it was later in the week because very quickly I received the games that, you know, would go on and be week two that I've I've probably put more time into than these week one ones. So I think it was a case of I might have had a weekend and then new things had come up and I really should go back and try and finish it off because I know it's not a long thing 
I know the whole game is probably only a few hours really start to finish or, or a bit longer if you're going to try and photograph every little bird. Yeah, exactly. You can finish the story without 100%ing it. Yeah. So there is a bit of a bit of replay value there as well. But I liked it. I liked it. So there we go. Those are the first two games on the play date. And also, that is the play date. It's been really, really great to finally uh, get to talk about it, to discuss it. And uh, yeah, I'm... I, really really looking forward to discovering all of the games in the first season i'm really looking forward to discovering a whole bunch of other side loaded games i'm really looking forward to having more play dates and it's going to be great play great play great oh <laughs> next week we will be taking a hiatus from the play date and we will be doing our first Fortnite challenge which again i'm really excited about me and Chris have challenged each other to play a specific game and we're going to be reflecting on that next week. As a reminder of what those games are, I challenge Chris to play Machinarium. And I challenge Jonathan to play Bleed. It's going to be great to talk about those as well. So let's meet back here same time next week for that. If you are enjoying what we're doing on the show, then please do consider supporting us. Go to o3c.games slash support. You can go to our Patreon page from there, patreon.com slash o3cgames if you want to bypass our website. But don't do that because that's great. You can pledge a few pounds a month to help support the show. It really, really does help. It is essential to help us keep going and we're hugely appreciative. We reciprocate that by going, here you go, here's all the content that you could ever want. Loads of bonus episodes, deleted scenes, uncut and ad-free video counterparts to the episodes, access to our Discord server, or just a, a whole host of things. It's brilliant. Or you can give us a cheeky one-off donation via PayPal. We'd love that as well. Or simply just share the podcast on your social media. Tag us in a post at O3C Games. That's what we're on at everything. You can chat to us on our social media channels. Tell us about what you're playing. Have you got a play date? How are you getting on with it? Tell us all about your experience so far. You can also reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am at Chaz underscore Hodges. And please do join us next week where we will not be playing Fortnite, but we will be playing our first Fortnite Challenge games. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm Colette. And I'm Matt. It's time to talk about the most important topic facing humanity. Climate video games. Change. Oh, okay, video games. <laughs> Every week on Colette and Matt have entered the chat, we have in-depth conversations about the games we're currently playing. We also talk to people who make video games as well as YouTubers, writers, and podcasters that you already know and love. We also talk about what you're playing when you join our community. Subscribe to Colette and Matt have entered the chat wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Hardcore Gaming 101 podcast is on a mission to rank the top games of all time. I like the idea that when Bruce Wayne gets angry, he switches to the Batman voice. Why do you have such a problem making boomerang shaped like a bat? You mean Jerk. like Batman? Not like Batman, just make it for me, Bruce Wayne. I can't <laughs> even with this guy. It's a Herculean task, and I'd be lying if I said it hasn't taken a toll on our cognitive faculties. Most people would be happy to have a job during a global pandemic. <laughs> Dennis... Hardcore Gaming 101, twice a week, every week, right here on the HyperX Podcast Network. We are here to announce a special deal for all of our O3C Games listeners. 
If you've had your eye on any of the pink variants of HyperX gear, you can now save 15% off during the month of October by using the code HXPN over at HyperX.com. Get yourself an elegant white and pink Cloud 2 or a metallic pink Alloy Origin 60 or any of the other pink peripherals on the site. Once again, head over to HyperX.com and get 15% off all pink gaming products with code, all in capitals, HX. P.N.